Welcome to episode 48 of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I am your co-host, The Father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, a.k.a. Matt Rawlings, and I am joined, as always, by my trusty sidekick, Jackson the Son, and welcome to another episode full of inherent animal magnetism. <laughs> oh, man. We are a spoiler podcast. We do spoil the movies we discuss, and today we turn our sights to the 1981 movie, The Howling. All your nightmares are about to be transformed into one single, inescapable fear. Tonight I'm going to show you something. Make you believe. The Howling. Beyond anything human. Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. Check newspapers. So, you just first saw The Howling today. That's right. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So, I saw, first saw this uh, on TV, edited version, um, when I was probably like 11 years old. And even the edited version scared the crap out of me. <laughs> this absolutely, like, traumatized me. So, if you haven't seen The Howling from 1981, shame on you. And we are talking about The Howling from 1981, not any of the terrible sequels or anything like that. But the IMDb synopsis reads, After a bizarre and near-deadly encounter with a serial killer, a television newswoman is sent to a remote mountain resort whose residents may not be what they seem. Pretty eh. good summary. <laughs> it's not I mean, bad. It's, it's as good as you can get, I think, without giving away, you know, how the plot unfolds. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's called The Howling. I mean, you've seen the poster, which is one of the greatest posters ever, by the way. You know, um, you you pretty much know what you're getting. But anyway, we meet uh, Dee Wallace's character, TV reporter named Karen White, who is investigating a series of murders and has been contacted by the killer, Eddie Quist. They meet in a porn shop, and it was shot in a real one. Uh, the look of disturbance on Dee Wallace's face was genuine. She did not like being in there. Um, so she meets Eddie, um, and Eddie begins to transform, we find out. Um, and she was being followed electronically by her colleagues, but when they lose track, they call the cops, the police come, they shoot Eddie. And then Karen suffers from PTSD and is advised by a psychologist, Dr. George Wagner, do you know whose name that is? Uh, no. Am I, am I? Is that supposed to be familiar to me? George Wagner directed The Wolfman. Oh. Yeah, that so makes the, a whole lot of sense. I mean, we see his body of work a lot in this movie. Yeah, it's yeah. There are a lot of Easter eggs in The Howling, and that's one of them. That's Dr. George Wagner. So named after the guy who directed the 1941 Wolfman. Uh, there are all kinds of other ones. You see, I think it's. Um, one of the characters is reading Howl. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you get this stuff like that all, you know, all over the place. So um, Dr. Wagner, played by the great, late great Patrick McNee, who advises Karen and her husband, who actually was her husband in real life, uh, to go to his retreat, which is filled with, shall we say, eccentrics? Yeah, that's putting it nicely. Yeah, they're yeah. they're loonies, basically. Yeah. So, well, why, you know, that's all going on. We find out that Eddie has survived the shooting. 
or we body has been stolen. We're led to believe something has happened. Um, and back in L.A., two of Karen's colleagues are investigating everything going on, like the disappearance of Eddie's body. And, and by the way, the mortician is John Sayles, the screenwriter, um, who would, of course, go on to become a great director himself, Mate Juan, Eight Men Out, you know, Lone Star, so forth. But they eventually run into, and I know you had to love this, the great Dick Miller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, more and more I'm realizing, R.I.P. Dick Miller, obviously, um, he's in everything. Um, just like I had the realization the other day that Corey Feldman is in every 80s movie, uh, it seems like Dick Miller is also in a, every 80s movie, and I'm not complaining because the guy was a legend. Oh, he was fantastic. And do you know what his favorite movie of all time that he did was? Nah, I'm going to guess The Howling. Since that's you what got it. It was The Howling, yep. Hey, this man, he's got favorite. good taste. That's right. And so... He owns an occult bookshop, and he kind of gives them the rundown on werewolves, right? That, and they, one of the tricks that John Sells throws into the screenplay in order to get around the whole full moon thing is that he informs them that werewolves are actually shapeshifters, and they can transform at any time just mm -hmm. by, by sheer will. I liked that twist on the lore. I don't. I don't, I like it when movies uh, shake things up, like they add new parameters to say a vampire. And uh, I like how Dick Miller was so dismissive, like, "Oh, that's baloney. That's that. You read that in those those crappy horror comics, you know? I got the real information." Right. Yeah. And he informs him there's only what there's only two ways to kill a werewolf. He says you got to burn him or or use silver. Right. Yep. Simple uh, enough. Yep. So. We got Dick Miller, though he's only in a couple scenes. He absolutely steals them. He's fantastic. So, yeah. So they begin to suspect something's up, and uh, they unfortunately split up, and uh, it kind of things go bonkers from there. But what did you think of the of the screenplay and the plot? Pretty good. Uh, I've I've I mean. It's awfully convenient sometimes, but uh, I like the twist they took on the, the, the werewolf lore. And I, I, I just, I think the most genius part of the movie from a screenplay perspective is the beginning, the opening scene, where mm -hmm. it, it felt really dark and gritty and, and gripping. It kind of reminded me of Silence of the Lambs if it featured werewolves, um, because I was all in. I was I was like I want to see this cry movie with werewolves and of course that's not how the rest of the movie is uh, but I appreciate the effort to do something different uh, with the concept of werewolves in the beginning at least and the rest of the movie uh, I still think it, it's pretty commendable I love the the just the feeling it gives me just watching it. it's got that like cozy 80s movie feeling where mm -hmm. you feel like it's something that you'd fall asleep watching at 2 a.m. on like public access uh, television but uh, yeah, I mean, the dialogue is, is, is occasionally pretty good, but I would say that it's serviceable, at least, throughout the entire movie. I think it's really good. John Sells is an excellent writer. Of course, he was very young at this time, and he was coming off of having written uh, a movie for Roger Corman called Piranha. Oh, right. Which also was directed by Joe Dante. So they, you know, they teamed back up to do uh, The Howling. And so I, I really like the screenplay. I like the dialogue um, a lot. I love all the Easter eggs that John Sales and Joe Dante throw in. I'm a huge Joe Dante fan anyway. If you listen to his podcast, the movies that uh, that made me, he is an encyclopedia. I mean, there's yeah. just rarely can you bring up a movie that he hasn't seen, knows everything about. And John Sales pretty much the same way, but. So I think they did a great job. And one of the things I love about the plot 
And I didn't really get this until I moved to L.A. Is that, yes, this is a horror movie about werewolves, really a kind of, I guess you would say, a cult of werewolves. But it's also a satire. And it's satirizing kind of the guru culture of Southern California in -hmm. which anyone with a degree who manages to get a book published and can get in front of somebody famous and can become a counselor to the stars and they almost take over these people's lives and they just do whatever they're told, you know. And so, you know, Karen is following the advice of this psychologist who just happens to be a freaking werewolf. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the good werewolves or one of the better ones at least um, there's two twists in there. Well, and the other, I would say, I'm not so sure how good he is. I think because Patrick McNee always comes across as so likable and, you know, but at the very end, I think it's pretty apparent that one, you know, he's wondering, has she been infected or mm-hmm. did she really see anything where she can reveal? Cause he obviously knows the, the entire Quist family and knows what's going on there that he wanted to kind of check her out and see how much information that she had. And possibly if she had any, I, I don't think he was above or below, you know, getting rid of her. Well, I mean, he does defend her in that one scene saying that she's famous and that people would know if she disappeared, uh, to which the other werewolves respond, let's just make it look like an accident. Um, and then they kind of turn on him, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's mostly just because he's so likable. I mean, and it's also, you know, just, I don't know. He's such a great personality, and he plays that uh, guru uh, personality so well um, because I was watching him in the opening scene, and I was like, oh, man, this guy's full of crap when he's promoting his book and he's talking about all this stuff. I'm like, this guy probably sat down and read somebody else's book and was like, that's so profound, dude. Let me write my own. Um, but uh, I, I love where they go with his character and um, especially his interactions with Karen. Yeah, well, it's just... But I do think, I mean, he's when her life is threatened, it's not like she's like, he's not like, oh, no, 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 she's a human being. It's no, 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 <laughs> think about the exposure. Yeah, think about us. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. So it was, uh, that's why I think he's, you know, and that's another way. I mean, he's charming, but he's got an agenda. You know, it's all about him and, and all this other kind of stuff. And, and that's what they're poking fun of because there's so much of that in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. There's just so much of that. I remember um, Oprah years ago, back when Oprah was still the queen of daytime TV, she had some guy on uh, to talk about religion, and she introduced the guy as Cambridge Educated. And so he's on Oprah. She pushes his book. The book becomes a bestseller. And then by a few months later, we learned that by Cambridge Educated, he audited a course at Cambridge. <laughs> he did not have a degree from Cambridge. And, but you, this kind of stuff happens all the time. I mean, you know, what, what exactly are Dr. Phil's credentials? He's, he's Dr. Phil. His credential, he got famous by just being himself, I guess. That's how you get all these famous personalities. Yeah. Um, I thought that the script was super genius, uh, especially in its parody of uh, just the news culture. Um, mm. One of my favorite scenes in the movie comes early on, and it's where the news anchor, uh, or I guess he's, he's, he might be trying out to be a news anchor or something. He's in the bathroom, and he's doing his TV voice, right? He's, later on at 6, he's doing that right. like nondescript accent, uh, deep kind of voice. 
and then he flips into a southern like light accent um and you're like oh yeah i forgot that these are performances that these people put on they're not sure. who they who they say they are which i thought was really funny uh yeah. and it is it is more comedic than people will give it credit for i think when uh they talk about these movies you know obviously the comparisons come up to american werewolf in london and that's more comedic i would say so mm. people are like oh so the howling is just all gloomy and serious not so i think there's a lot of really great humor especially towards the first half of the movie but uh you got to give the screenwriter uh, credit for that at least yeah oh absolutely well john sales again is a great great screenwriter but um what about the cast what do you think of the uh, cast of the howling I think the leads are really good, and the rest are are just good overall. Um, Dee Wallace, obviously, she is one of my favorite actresses. I mean, she's in everything. Uh, she gives a great performance overall. Uh, you can really feel the desperation in her voice whenever people won't listen to her, which is one of my favorite uh, things to see in a movie. Kind of reminds me of Helen from Candyman in some parts. Uh, not, not with the whole plot about people thinking she murdered other people, but just the... Uh, you know, her character in general. I absolutely love her relationship uh, with her husband, who is her real-life husband. Uh, they talk like normal people, which I always love to see. Um, and I think a lot of that just has to do with they had a, a relationship in real life, so it wasn't that far off. Mm. But it also it also goes to show you again that the, that the writing was really good for their characters. Uh, and uh, we already touched upon uh, the doc, the doctor, uh, who is absolutely great and charming. And when he wants to play it up and be uh, sinister, he can do that. But he also has this kind of strange uh, feeling to him where he kind of wants to die. So he, he purposefully walks towards a person with a silver bullet just because he wants to die already. Uh, so I thought it was really interesting. Some great characters in this. Um, though I don't think that's the standout of the movie. It just so happens that they add to the immersion. Yeah, there's a, but the supporting cast is pretty impressive when you start. I mean, you know, there's, you know, Slim Pickens and John Carradine. And I mean, you've got all sure. these people in it um, and, and they, you know, they're not given a lot to do. They're, they do what they're supposed to. But it's uh, I think it's a, a tremendous cast. First of all, I think Dee Wallace is an underrated actress who, after E.T., for whatever reason, never really got, you know, the kind of parts I think she should have. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's because she's, you know, they think she's too cute to be sexy or, or I don't know. I, you know, but it's just I think she's an underrated actress. I really love and you want to talk about against type Robert Picardo playing yeah. Eddie Quist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's you know, the standout for me, honestly. If you look at, you know, his body of work, even in all the Joe Dante movies he's done, because he's done a bunch. He was in The Burbs. You know, he and Dick Miller were the two uh, garbage men in The Burbs. He's in Gremlins 2. He's in Matinee. And, you know, he was on Seinfeld. I mean, the guy, the guy looks like your, you know, the guy next door. He looks like an accountant, mm -hmm. you know? And for him to pull off, I mean, he had already transformed himself even before Rob Botin got a hold of him in order to play Eddie. And he plays Eddie really sleazy and really scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was terrified by him. And of course, uh, you know, this is just me. I know him best from Interspace as the cowboy. Uh, oh, but, that's right. But yeah, very against type for him. Eddie is terrifying. You 
feel like you can smell his breath through the screen. Oh. Uh, and especially acid, melted face Eddie later on. Yeah. Uh, just just great stuff. And even when he's in a werewolf form, I love that you can tell it's him just because of how much of a scumbag he is. Um, yeah, definitely a great performance from him. And I think D. Wallace was actually scared of him because it seems like he was really playing it up there. Uh, and I think I would be too. Well, it's funny because I was uh, reading some stuff and he was at, this was his first big movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he had was basically a Broadway actor and he had been the lead in two Broadway plays. He was, you know, he was Yale graduate, all this kind of stuff. And then he said that he remembers he did like six hours of makeup uh, to prepare for one of the transformation scenes. And by the time they were done, it was too late at night and they had to let everybody go. So he had to spend the night in the makeup all night long and says he remembers just like lying flat on his back with all this werewolf makeup on and sitting there thinking, I went to Yale. I was on Broadway. What life choices am I making right now? When he was really kind of questioning his very existence. It's all worth it for the art, I guess. Um, but yeah, I would not want to be in his situation. Uh, and it seems like that happens a lot in these horror movies we're covering where these people have to sacrifice any semblance of comfort just for the practical effects, which is one downside uh, with practical effects, I suppose. With CGI, you can just kind of uh, put it all in there later in post. But, uh, you know, that's uh, again, that's the sacrifice you make for the art of it. But he does a great job, so I, I definitely salute him. And when we're talking about the cast, um, we need to speak of, and I... I don't think I put her name down in my notes, which I should be ashamed of myself. But um, Marsha Quist. Yeah. Um, that was Elizabeth. Let me look it up here. She didn't do a whole lot. Elizabeth Brooks as Marsha mm-hmm. Quist. Um, absolutely stunning. And I also just, there. she does a very good job of all, you know, as, as attractive as she is, as she's still menacing yeah she's really creepy uh she strikes me as somebody where you first see them and you're like oh okay and then once you get to know them you're like keep me away from that i think a restraining order is in in effect and i love uh the the back and forth between her and uh d wallace's husband in the movie is his name chris mm-hmm. uh between her and chris which is uh great yeah, that's another, as you go through the cast, I keep realizing that it's better than I gave it credit for. I would say this is a great cast overall. Um, and yeah, I didn't even Dennis think about the fact. Yeah, go ahead. I didn't even think about the fact that John Carradine was in it. I didn't even, that didn't even cross my mind until I saw uh, that he played Earl Kenton. Um, but yeah, great cast overall. I'm, I'm surprised. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, uh, I forgot to mention, uh, Dick Miller plays Walter Paisley. That's the owner of the bookstore. That's also his character's name in his very first starring role, Bucket of Blood, from 1959. Oh, right. Yeah. That's funny. So this this whole movie is just chock full of references to other movies. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and Dante would keep it up. If you watch Gremlins, Mm -hmm. the next time you watch Gremlins... If you look at the family's refrigerator, there's a smiley face magnet like Eddie uses from The Howling. Oh, really? Yes. That's kind of morbid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, it is. But supposedly, you know, the people have argued, oh, Gremlins and the Howling are in the same universe. Um, well, that would mean it, that Eddie had visited uh, their house, which is probably not a good sign. <laughs> Oh, hey, man, you never know. When you call a plumber, you never know who's going to show up. Um, so um, what about the cinematography? You're you're an aspiring filmmaker, and this is a low-budget movie. I mean, a, a much lower budget than American Werewolf in London. A lot of people compare them because they came out the same year. Um, I'll look up the budget of American Werewolf in London. But this was, you know, um, the budget for The Howling was a million dollars. Yeah. So not a huge budget, but I think it shot well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is. There's some creative uh, uses of the camera. I think the way that it's used best are in the, the shots when it's daytime and they're out there and it's just kind of exploring the landscape uh, where you get these really cool wide shots, especially when they're driving to the compound. I thought that looked really good. Kind of reminded me of the opening of The Shining. But, um, you know, it's not it, nothing blew me away, but I think a lot of that is just time. If you don't have a lot of money, you can pour a lot of time into it. And I mean, people don't really think about it, but but the art of knowing where to place a camera and what to do with it once you get it there, uh, it it takes a lot of thought. So um, I guess I really just couldn't afford to do it, um, you know, as much as American Werewolf in London uh, did, because I think that movie really blew me away. But still, really, really good, um, and much better than I could even dream of doing. Well, I I don't know about that. We'll see about that one day. But I thought it was well done. Yeah, American Werewolf in London was shot for just under six million that was its wow. budget the yeah, howling so six, is one million nearly six times the budget yeah that really that that would make sense yeah and so what about the score because i know you're also a musician what did you think yeah i had to reflect on this um i think overall it's good not great the main theme is great uh i listened to that on youtube actually after i was done watching it and i thought that was really good but the rest was kind of forgettable for me. We get some synths, we get some strings, uh, but I think the main theme is the only uh, really notable thing in the score. That being said, uh, especially in the scene where the the werewolves are all burning up in the barn, I think it really adds to the to the feeling of it, uh, and even the lack of it in some scenes really uh, really helps. But I think more interesting than the score is the sound design. Um, just like the menagerie and amb like you feel like you're in the woods uh, in that compound, especially yes. the scene where uh, she opens the window and tries to record all the wolves howling. Uh, that really disturbed me. All like the different layers of wolves howling uh, and the sounds of the forest. It, it really does immerse you in it, especially if you're wearing headphones. Uh, so that was nice. I think the sound design far outshines the score. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that now. <clears throat> and I, I, I held off something on the plot till there because Here's my question. This is where the big debate comes down to. I don't think it's a fair debate. What about the special effects? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was actually impressed. Um, obviously, I'm not going to say uh, that they're better than American Werewolf in London. I think certainly the transformation in American Werewolf is is more interesting Uh it's, it's got more going on. I think in The Howling, it's mostly just like bubbling out. Uh, though we do get a couple of interesting uh, kind of holdovers from both movies. In, in both films, we see a profile shot where like the snout is extending painfully. Uh, but yeah. I think it, it has more weight in American Werewolf. Uh, but with the budget they had, 
the howling does a pretty great job. I think especially when they're they're even shot in wide and you see the full body of the werewolf. It's pretty mm-hmm. impressive. And they remind me actually of dog soldiers, the the design in dog soldiers. Oh yeah. Uh, so that was really cool. Um they're less beast and more like man in their build uh than American werewolf where it's basically just a big wolf. Um but in this, they're they're like the dog soldiers uh, ones, and just as intelligent, if not more, than the dog soldiers werewolves. Uh, so I th- I think it looks pretty good, especially the first scene where it's fully revealed. We just kind of dive right into it uh, when we see Eddie transform in the uh, I guess it's like a hospital sick bay area, um, and he's it's not darkly lit. I mean, you can see his whole body, and it. it's pretty scary. Well. Excuse me, and this is this is why I bring this up. Uh, people compare American Werewolf and Howling all the time because they came out so close together. Mm-hmm. Um, although you know, John Landis had been working on an American Werewolf in London. I think he said he wrote the script for American Werewolf in London, which came out in '81. I think he wrote the script in 1968 or '69. Yeah. Um, and he'd been he'd known Rick Baker since 1973, and they'd actually been working on the designs since '73 to get this made. And it was only after he had national lampoons, um, animal house and blues brothers were a big hit that he'd finally get it made. But, you know, and of course, Rick Baker had signed on to do the howling. Um, but when Landis got greenlit, he said, I can't, he backed out. And so then his assistant, Rob Botin stepped Mm -hmm. in. And so Rob with one sixth of the budget, I agree that the transformation scene in American Werewolf in London, that's iconic, and that, that's incredible. Rick Baker had been working on it for eight years. He had it down pat. But here's my argument. I actually have several arguments why I think The Howling is a better werewolf movie. Okay. And here's one. Okay, so going into the special effects, you brought up the look of the werewolf. The werewolves look like wolf people, right? They mm-hmm. don't look like just big wolves. Sure. I like that more. I think that's scarier. I think it's much scarier. One of the things that bugs me is that once you get through the transformation in American Werewolf in London, it just looks like a big dog. Mm-hmm. I don't find that scary. I like big dogs. So it, I just don't, <laughs> I don't find it scary. Even when I was 11 years old, that scene where, you know, Robert Picardo as the wolf, Eddie Quist, and he lifts... I forget the actress's name, Belinda something, but lifts her off the ground and then leans in to take a chunk out of her neck. Mm -hmm. Terrified me. Mm -hmm. When I think of werewolves, this is what I think of. And I think that the design is better in the end than what Rick Baker did. Transformation, yeah, transformation is better. But the end product, I think, is scarier and better in The Howling than it is in American Werewolf in London because I think it's more frightening. And Rob Bottin, I think, you know, he kind of got thrown into the fire with this. And he pulled it off with little money. There are a couple werewolf scenes that they had to do with, like, stop-motion animation because they had no money and all that kind of stuff. And, and you can't blame him for that. But... You know, his werewolves are scarier and they the design fits better because basically another thing that John Sales and Joe Dante are doing is, OK, if somebody can be a shapeshifter and turn into a werewolf whenever they want, why would they want to? Well, the answer is it's pure id, you know, the Freudian ego versus id, that it's just 
it's engaging in every kind of carnal, animalistic thing human beings have. And so that's why, you know, they do it. They're almost addicted to it. And, and so, well, if you just made them like dogs, that wouldn't make any sense. But making them wolf people, whatever, I think that's a lot better. My argument is that the werewolves and dog soldiers and in The Howling are scarier. I think it fits the story better. I think it fits one of the themes better. So absolutely love what Rob Bottin did. And, and think about this. He goes with almost no money to do these effects. And then after this, his next job is The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing. <laughs> which made he, no money. Which made no money and, and, and gave Rob Bottin and almost had a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. Consisting off nothing but Coke and cigarettes from what I hear. Yeah, and having to sleep on the set because mm-hmm. he was having to work all the time to get this stuff done. And apparently John Carpenter was not very patient with him. So uh, I love the transformations here. That scene in the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. And then we find out you know, later that Eddie was recording it all on tape, his attack. Mm-hmm. So he yeah. gets laid back, which is really creepy. Which is, that's an interesting thing. I don't think I've ever seen that. Uh, any level of like interest from where people to know what they did as a werewolf. Usually they want to distance themselves from it, uh, but he's just embracing it fully. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's amazing. All right. Rob Botine, my hat's off to you, sir. You are a genius. And I think that uh, the howling and, and the thing as a one, two punch shows that uh, his name needs to be mentioned right up there with Savini and all the other great makeup artists. Don't you think? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I. Here's where I stand. Okay. Uh, okay. Great work. Um, with the time constraints and uh, budgetary constraints that he had, this is, a, you know, a perfect job. I don't. I don't know how he could have done it any better. And certainly, the thing is, it has some of the most iconic special or practical effects of all time. Yep. Um, I think, especially of that um, scene with the defibrillator, that's probably the most iconic. But. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm going to have to disagree with that, that oh, these are boy. scarier than the American werewolf in London uh, werewolf. Because my thing with American werewolf is that it's, it, it doesn't look like a dog to me. There's something off about it. You can see his skin through the patchy fur, his like red, like muscly skin through, through the like grayish patchy fur. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really disturbing. It looks disease ridden. Um, and his face is just wrong. There's something like creepy and unsettling about it where there's almost this uncanny valley. Like it looks like a wolf, but not quite. And it looks like a human, but not quite. Um, whereas I think with this and dog soldiers, they just look like wolf heads on a, a hairy human body. And I still think that's really impressive with, with what they did. I imagine that they did animatronics as well as some physical acting with people, at least with like the heads on um, or arms for certain scenes. But, uh, you know, that that's really impressive to me. But I, I'm going to have to say that American Werewolf in London is creepier just from a design perspective. Because the reason that they were scary in dog soldiers is that there were so many of them and that they were so tactical and smart. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think here, uh, especially, I mean, when it's Eddie, it is scary because you know what he can do. Right. But when it's like old guy who tried to commit suicide in the fire pit earlier, I don't know that I'm necessarily as scared of him as I would be of somebody who's not in control of their body. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, like American Werewolf, 
that's it. They are just controlled by these animal urges, and they will kill and kill until they transform back into a human. It seems to me like, yeah, they kill to feed, whether it's cows or people in the howling, but they're more sentient than the one. They're less beast and more man, um, which I think is just they're, they're more like the thing than the Hulk, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's where I stand. And I, I think they're scarier. But the problem is they're they've got lots of them. So I think they're more deadly just because they, they're in a pack. Well, yeah, they're in a pack, but I I hear what you're saying, but I think the Quist siblings alone are frightening. Sure. I mean, yeah. goodness sakes, because mm-hmm. they're yeah. obviously even before they became werewolves, they appear to have been psychotic. Yeah, and you add in that killer family like aspect to it, almost like the Sawyers, uh, where you also it, it seems like they they've combined the cult horror and the werewolf horror to try to terrify you from. It's like a, a war on both fronts. Uh, so I do, I do think that is very effective, but I think just from a design and a concept standpoint that the American werewolf werewolves are scarier. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not even saying that the effects are better. I just like the design better. Uh, all right. I agree to disagree. I, I think it's a lot scarier. Like I said, American werewolf in London. I love the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm not bagging on American werewolf in London. Um, and you know, if for no other reason, I, I really like John Landis, his son, Max is a creeper, but, um, but John Landis is, is I I'm telling you, man, if you're looking for like, if you love movies and you love stories about movies, go and search your podcast app, whatever, for interviews with John Landis, John Landis yeah. tells the best stories. Cause the guy mm-hmm. used to hang with Hitchcock. Yep, and History of Horror, I listened to his interview oh. uh, and watched him on the on the Shutter series. Amazing dude. I mean, he is just like he when you have people who are an encyclopedia of horror, he's an encyclopedia of just everything. I mean, the he guy is. knows everything. And a high school dropout. Mm-hmm. He dropped out of school when he was 16. And, and he's so there. humble about it. I mean, he's yeah. he's been a part of so many like uh huge like like genre defining movies and for that status i mean he is pretty humble oh yeah it's he's he's great so i i love an american werewolf in london we'll Mm -hmm. cover it someday my only big problem with an american werewolf in london and this is other than the dog i just don't like the dog werewolf thing i just don't like that i like the wolf man i think that's scarier that's my preference that aside um an American werewolf in London has a great cast with one exception. And in my opinion, it's the lead. <laughs> really? I can't. I think David Naughton. Huh. I hear that he's an incredibly nice gentleman, but I think he's a terrible actor. And you know, I'm trying to rack my brain. I don't remember how I feel about him, but I feel like his chemistry with the lead actress was pretty good. Oh, well, she was wonderful, but. I just don't think he's a very good actor and okay. he comes across as a, as a 80s, 70s, 80s sitcom actor. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely feels like a sitcom because he's just, he's very innocent. It feels like and gullible. Um, and yeah. he has no idea what's going on, but I think it works, especially in the comedic scenes, maybe not so much when it's a horror movie, uh, but when he's yeah. having interactions with his dead friend, I think definitely it does work. So well, that's and the, the problem there is movie. because I think Griffin Dunn, the dead friend mm-hmm. there is so good. Yeah. Yeah. So he just it, looks bad by comparison. Exactly. Whereas this cast in the howling, I don't think there's a bad performance in it. I think the cast is solid from top to bottom. Yeah. And so I think it's a stronger cast. 
Um, so I, I prefer, look, I prefer the Howlington American Werewolf in London. Save your emails and everyone. Don't, don't, don't. <laughs> I, I, I love them both. I just prefer the Howling. That's You can email me with your love for American Werewolf because it's, it's my favorite out of the two. You, you can bombard me. Oh, boy, oh, boy. All right. What else do you want to talk about with the Howling? So can we talk about the, the sheriff, the, the cops? Uh, yeah. Werewolves with shotguns. Yeah. I'm wondering, is that the inspiration for Wolf Cop? It could be. Um, because as me- immediately when I saw that, I was like, man, they should make a movie about that. Oh, wait. Um, so that was really interesting to me. I love the sheriff. Um, is he a sheriff? Yeah, I think he is. Yeah, he's uh, sheriff. Especially uh, one of my favorite scenes uh, with him in it. Uh, D. Wallace is, is playing, or I should call her Karen, is playing uh, tennis with her friend. And uh, he walks by just to pop in and, and give a few sarcastic remarks. But they're, they're both like, oh, you crazy old man. Uh, yeah. Which I think he plays perfectly. And then when it's revealed that he's also a werewolf, I think that's just so funny. Um, oh, I love it. I love Slim Pickens anyway. I yep. mean, whether it's and Dr. Right, Strange too. Love or Blazing Saddles or whatever, I, I, I love Slim Pickens. And did you notice there's a scene where he's walking around eating right out of a can of chili? Did you see what the chili was? No. Wolf chili. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Man, they, you can tell that Dante was like talking to his production assistant. He's like, just go out, find every wolf themed thing in the supermarket and buy it. And that's where our budget's going. Yeah. Well, the guy had Joe Dante. I mean, he's an interesting guy. He's very smart. Seems very nice. Mm-hmm. Had a very good reputation. Unfortunately, had a bad run of luck in the late 80s and 90s so that he made some really good movies that didn't make money. Like Matinee is a great movie. Uh, you brought up Interspace. Interspace mm-hmm. actually was a bomb. Yeah, Interspace is great. Uh, it is great. That, that breaks my heart. So, oh, God bless Joe Dante. So anyway, um, yeah, he's got all kinds of little Easter eggs here and there. And, and like John Landis, ironically, both of them are like walking encyclopedias. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, there's all these little inside. Right? You got to remember, like, OK, they're, you know, naming the psychiatrist, doc, Dr. George Wagner and all this other kind of stuff. There's no Internet mm-hmm. in 1980 when they're making this. You know, this is just all Joe Dante and John Sayles just drawing from their minds, you know, all this stuff. And they're both brilliant. So it's, uh, uh, I could gush about Joe Dante in this movie forever. And John Sayles, <laughs> I love John Sayles. Look, I, I love horror movies, um, but like Dr. Shock, I'm a movie buff, period. Like there's not, I mean, I can watch almost any movie, you know, and during this pandemic, I've spent, I've wasted way too much time just sitting with Turner classic movies and just watching movie after movie after movie. Um, but you know, I, John Sayles has gone on to do some, I think some of the greatest American films of the eighties and nineties, because there was a lot of junk because there was a lot of, you know, during the sixties and seventies, you had late sixties and seventies, you had the studios kind of turn movies over to directors with the auteur theory, right? Saying mm-hmm. uh, after easy rider, it's like, Oh, maybe these guys we pay to direct movies actually know what they're doing. And right. so we're just going to leave them alone and let them do what they want to do. But then in the eighties, it got very corporate and it got very stiff and, you know, and all that other kind of stuff. And, but there's John Sayles out there making movies like Mate One and, and Eight Men Out and, 
you know, then in the 90s, he makes a movie like Lone Star, which I mm -hmm. remember taking a girlfriend uh, to go see. And I walked out just thinking how brilliant it was. She said, I think that was boring. We broke up that night. Um, <laughs> hey, I own Lone Star, but haven't seen it yet. So that might be an investment of time. I need it's, to a, it's a slow burn, but it's a great movie. Uh, I love Matthew McConaughey. So, so that, might, that might be something I need to partake in. It's a great movie. So, all right, enough of my rant. What else do you want to talk about with The Howling? So, okay. Karen's transformation at the end in front of a live audience. Yes, I knew that was going to be coming, yes. What are your thoughts on it? Because my opinion, just real quick, is it looks like Chewbacca's son in the holiday special. Yeah, um, that has been a consistent complaint. Joe Dante's thinking was that she doesn't, unlike the rest of that pack, she doesn't want to be a werewolf. She does not want to embrace, you know, her primal id. And so it kind of shows through in her transformation. Unfortunately, I think it would have been fine um, if two years later we didn't get Ewoks, because yeah. that's what it reminds me of. Mm -hmm. She looks like an Ewok. Um, if George Lucas, <coughs> excuse me, hadn't sold out and gone with his original premise for Return of the Jedi, which was that... Uh, there were Wookiees. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they're on Kashyyyk. Instead, he decides to go with Ewoks so that he can sell a bunch of little plush, you know, stuff yeah. to kids. Um, I, I think it might have been fine. It, 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 yeah, it, it, it's a mistake. I, I, but I'm not sure how it had gone if she'd looked very menacing either. I think maybe somewhere, if it possible, in between. Mm -hmm. Now, here are my thoughts. Okay. Uh, I both hate and love it. I don't think it looks good, but it's interesting because that's what people who are accused of being werewolves, you know, but they really just had this genetic uh, condition actually look like. These people with this condition where they grow hair all over, that's what they look like. So in a way, that's more accurate to what people who are actually living with so-called werewolf uh, disorder, you know, look like. But I think the way it's shot, you, you just get that quick cutaway to it, and she's got, like, these starry eyes and the hair all over her face. I think it could have been done better. Uh, yeah. Maybe don't show her whole face, just, like, a, a, a snippet of it. Or maybe show it through the news camera so it, you kind of get that grain distortion on it, making it more disturbing. Um, oh, that would have worked. I like that. Yeah. I like, yeah. yeah. There's no—I I guess I wasn't—yeah, I wasn't really thinking creatively about it. You're right. If you just got to— a shot of her because I think the initial transformation when her eyes go mm -hmm. and that looks things that looks good yeah and that's the picture on IMDb uh, that shows up first because it is pretty menacing with she's got the glow in her eyes and you can tell something's about to go down um, so I think they should have gone with that and then for a split second uh, show her maybe attacking one of the news cameras or something uh, and and it shows that uh, I think that would have been better than what we got but again time restraint so and hindsight is 2020 i'm i'm sure that once the final cut was together and they were printing it they realized that's kind of corny but you know what are you gonna do time is money and they were if they didn't include well, it yeah. that was time wasted you have those two scenes there are two scenes in the movie where the special effects don't work at all where they usually they literally use like 
in one scene it's it's animation and in another scene it's like uh stop motion and it's and it's you know joe dante just didn't have the money mm-hmm. you know he had to he had to cut corners he tried to get more money and they wouldn't avco embassy wouldn't give it to him so mm-hmm. he had to do what he had to do and so but yeah that's always been the knock on it is that that last but i I think that uh, you're right. It could have been shot differently. You, you got a point. So I, I, I'm still on the ending. Okay. Okay. Go for we it. get we get the credits rolling after it's it's uh, discovered um, that one of the werewolves escaped and is, right. has infiltrated human society. I guess setting up a sequel, which we unfortunately got, but it had nothing to do with this. But we'll talk about that <laughs> later, I'm sure. Um, so then we cut to the credits. Which, which roll over a picture, uh, I, well, it's not a picture, it's footage of a hamburger patty frying. Right. Um, all because of a pun that, uh, that she makes before right. the credits roll. Could they not have thought of a more chilling end to it? Like, really, a hamburger patty frying? I get that it's a callback to uh, the husband saying he stays away from meat, and then we get the whole thing where he starts eating meat when he's a vampire. Um, and uh, she said she wanted it rare, so she got right. a little bit of a joke in there. I feel like they definitely could have done a better thing to roll the credits on. Maybe he brings it out to her, and she thanks him, and then there's that glint in her eyes, and then the credits roll or something. Anything other than a hamburger patty. You may be right, but I do think that there's that, you know, kind of Corman kind of wink and a nod thing still sure. going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know if Joe Dante is, is a vegetarian or not. I know that he is a um, uh, animal rights person. I mean, not like an activist, but he's just like mm-hmm. I heard him on his podcast that he he watched one episode of Tiger King and turned it off because he just couldn't even bear to think about cruelty to animals so that's yeah, hard so i i that may be something along those lines you know i mean the guy did get his i mean he went to film school but then he got his real education working as an editor for roger corman in the 70s yeah and yeah it definitely felt like which is interesting we have dick miller in the cast it felt like something that'd be in bucket of blood or something like that oh yeah um, so that was interesting i just thought it was weird i was kind of caught off guard by it um because I mean, it just felt like a like a joke that that stayed for way too long. Because the entire credits roll over it, over that hamburger patty. So I, I just wanted to bring that up. Uh, and then something interesting, an after credit sequence of sorts. I mean, it's only like five seconds, but that's pretty rare for '80s movies. Yeah. Uh, we just yeah. get a clip from the Wolfman as seen through a TV, which is shown playing earlier. Um, it's when uh, the Wolfman is talking to the fortune teller. Um, the gypsy woman, and she is talking about uh, werewolves. I I just think that was a fun little nod, <laughs> how they kind of send you out from the movie with a quote about how they're going to send you out from the movie from the yeah. Wolfman. Yeah. Um, so that was fun. That that was a fun little extra after the hamburger patty, um, and that that really struck me. I mean. One of my notes that I have as I finish, as I wrap up my uh, my live note taking of this, uh, was that the movie in some parts kind of reminds me of a more serious and and frankly better version of Transylvania Six Five Thousand, 
um, <laughs> where they cut, they go out to this uh, manor area and they're bombarded by monsters. Uh, and Transylvania Six Five Thousand, obviously, it's a lot of different monsters, references to Universal monsters and, and such. But uh, and this is just werewolves. I feel like perhaps Transylvania Six Five Thousand could have been inspired by The Howling. Really? Yeah, just in tone, maybe. Just in the setting. There, I know um, there's a new Blu-ray of Transylvania Six Five Thousand out there. I haven't bought it because I rewatched it uh, when it dropped I, Amazon Prime like a year ago, and it wasn't. It, yeah. It was a bit of what what uh, Gilman Joel calls C and D. It yeah. wasn't as funny as I remember it when I was like 13. Mm-hmm. I still liked it, but it, it just wasn't, you know, as as uproariously funny as I found it when I was like 12, 13 years old. But Here's- yeah, I think it's got a lot of anti-humor, which is, like, uh, not usually, like, the consistent tone throughout 80s comedies. I mean, you've obviously got stuff like Airplane, but there's also a lot of, like, genuine humor in that. Whereas with Transylvania 65000, the way it gets laughs is just by making something either so annoying or so strange that you just kind of let out a chuckle. Right. Um, like, with Kramer, obviously, his whole character is just him Mike being Richards, a... yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I do like that movie, but I don't think it's funny, which is, which is weird. No, there are a lot of those from the eighties that they're, they're not necessarily funny, but they're likable. Like I don't, you know, this is going to, you know, irritate Wolfman Josh. I don't think the burbs is that funny. And it was, was, I don't think it's that funny, but it's got such a sweet nature to it that I like it. I think the burbs is funnier, certainly than Transylvania 65,000. Well, yeah, but. but but now part of my okay part of me was i don't want to go too off on a tangent i most of the laugh lines are given to rick dukamon because he was the stand-up comic that was you know on it um and i met rick dukamon several times and he was a first class i mean i don't want to speak ill of the dead but well he was let's just say was unpleasant um i'll leave it at that and so maybe that kind of colors that i don't know i i but it's I like the burbs. I like almost anything Joe Dante's done, you know, mm-hmm. even when he had a movie yanked from him and they released like the, uh, you know, the movie, the explorers. Yeah. Oh, one of my favorites. That's C and D for sure. But that is one of my favorites. Well, but that was a rough cut. Mm-hmm. What they yeah. released was a rough it cut. Shows. Joe Dante, yeah. Joe Dante yeah. never got to finish it because there was a change in studio heads and this happens. The new studio head said, I don't, I don't care for that. I don't like it. And just release what you got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Joe Dante's like, oh, yeah, Joe Dante's like, it's not done. You mm-hmm. know, it's not anywhere near done. And they were like, nope, we're releasing it. And, then, you know, it nearly ruined his career. And because he didn't, they didn't give him the extra three months they promised him to go back and fix stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that stuff happens all the time. It, it, but I, I, you know, I love Joe Dante. Love the stuff he's done. I love this movie. I'm a little shocked that our buddy Wolfman Josh doesn't like this movie or dog soldiers yeah that surprises me um i you know maybe it's just he knows werewolves so well that he's he's on another level than we are um but i don't know i i do like this movie uh but i think if if he were to say and i'm assuming he does say this that american werewolf is better i would agree with him though not as much as you might expect as much as everybody talks up American Werewolf in London as an all-time great, which I agree, um, I don't think it's in another ballpark of quality from this, especially not 
you know, given the huge gap in budget, I mean, I think they did a pretty stellar job on this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So, and by the way, I am writing a, I have written a blog post for our blog that will go up. I wanted to wait till we recorded this, but on why the howling is a great movie, trying to convince people like Wolfman and Josh that this is a great movie. And <clears throat> so here's a, something I took, here's just a blurb from the blog post. It's not a long blog post, maybe five, 600 words, but I wrote this. I said, John Landis um, stated recently that the difference between parody and satire is that the former is just making fun of something. And so I misused the word satire early, i.e. airplane. But satire works as social commentary within a genre and only works if it intelligently expo exposes, exposes, sorry, I can't speak, the flaws of something in our culture while still doing what genre fans want the piece of art to do. The Howling perfectly peels back the danger of the, what I call, guru movement while still being scary. And so that's part of what I wrote. I, I think The Howling works so well because it works as a parody or satire, however you want to look at it. And it's a scary movie. And that's why I love this movie. Yeah, I can't disagree with you on that. It definitely does use satire and parody uh, very well. I think especially in the first act, a little bit of that goes away for me when Doc isn't on screen. But yeah, um, yeah I, I totally understand where you're coming from. All right. So anything else you want to talk about with The Howling before we wrap up? Well, you know, I got to touch on it. Um, I think you know what I'm going to say. What's up with the sequel? And the sequels, I should say. Uh, just stay away from this. Okay, now look, folks. Howling 2, your sister is a werewolf, as it's known mm -hmm. here in America. Um, known as something else overseas, but... Yeah, yeah. You should... There should be, just like the, the, the Disaster Artist mm -hmm. was a great movie about a movie so bad that it's enjoyable <laughs> to watch. Yep. There needs to be a book and movie about the making of Howling 2. Definitely. Um, the, the stories that come out of that are just bonkers. I mean, absolutely bonkers. When Christopher Lee did Gremlins 2, did his bit parts in Gremlins 2, he apologized to Joe Dante for being in Howling 2. <laughs> <laughs> Don't said, blame think, him. He said, I think I besmirched your legacy by appearing in that piece of you-know-what. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, but Howling 2 is the only sequel I've seen. Now, I've only seen, I've seen 2, 3, and 4. Um, 2 is so bad it's good. 3 is just disgusting. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally disgusting. It Like, I made the mistake of eating, and I I got, was getting, like, nauseous watching the movie. Um, and for all the wrong reasons. It's not scary, it's just gross. Howling 4, which is faithful to the novel, which I've read, is just boring. Yeah. I mean, incredibly boring. Like, nothing happens forever. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, stay away from the sequels. Just, just focus on this one. That's all I got to say. Well, let me put my two cents in Go just to say that there are eight Howling movies. Yeah. Uh, and people might lose track because there are subtitles at some point. Uh, but yeah, there are eight ones, with the, with the last one being in 2011 with The Howling Reborn, which, by the way, may I just add, has a shocking 20% in Rotten Tomatoes. You would think it would be way less than that. Um, 
but twenty percent. One of them has a zero. I -hmm. can't remember which one, but I remember looking around on this. One of them has a zero. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, you took something good and you stretched it out over eight movies, um, over so many decades. Just let it rest. Please let it rest. Give us a new release of The Howling or something with some extras. Don't make another one. Um, but yeah, that that totally shocked me. Now, I will say, Howling to Your Sister is a Werewolf, I think is equally entertaining as the first one, but for all the wrong reasons. Oh, for all the I wrong mean, reasons, yeah. You've got Christopher Lee at a rave uh, with with weird, wacky, rad 80s sunglasses on. Um, you've got so many terrible lines of dialogue. I mean, you could wear any of the lines in, in The Howling 2 as a t-shirt and have people laugh at it. And you'd be like, hey, you know that movie. Um, Sybil Danning, one of her most memorable roles, oh, but not for the boy. reason that she would like to remember, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And uh, what I must say is a rather radical soundtrack, um, but it is. Can I say it, we we are going to do an episode sometime on music, but for sure. But uh, I actually like that song. <laughs> hey, it's I do kind too. of an earwig kind of song. I, I the soundtrack actually isn't bad. That's why I called it radical. I mean, I wasn't being sarcastic. It's it's pr- it's pretty good. Uh, now I will say. I'm not sure if the 4.8 out of 5 on Shout Factory's website is is, is totally accurate. Uh, I think probably the 3.6 out of 10 and the 27% on Rotten Tomatoes is more like it. Yeah. However, you will not find a more So Bad It's Good horror movie from 1985. That's all I'll say. Yeah, you may be right. I, I can't remember what your Nailgun Massacre is, but you may be right. So. Oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Oh, yeah, 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 because it's, it's, it's up there, too. But all right, so anything else you want to talk about before we give our ratings and recommendations? Dad, I, I got to say, I think I'm just ready to move on to my, uh, my rating. All right, what's your rating? I want to hear it. <sighs> this, is, this, is, this, is, uh, this is tricky. I'm going to land uh, at, for this viewing, this, this first original viewing, mm-hmm. an 8 to an 8.5 out of 10. All right, I'll, um, I'll settle for that. I like that. I, I think it's great, but I don't think I could rewatch it for a while unless I was with somebody who wanted to watch it with me. Um, just because I watched so intently and took so many notes, I think I would probably be pretty bored. However, I do recommend you buy it because it's a pain to track down online. So iTunes sells it to buy for like 15 bucks. Uh, and Amazon sometimes has it up for rent. Listen, every other day I checked it, it was at a different status. It was either available for rent for $5.99, available to rent for $3.99, or not available at all. They like lost the, the distributing rights mm-hmm. to it or something. If you really want to watch it, you should probably just get the Blu-ray. And I think I'll have to uh, in the future just because I want to see some bonus features. All oh, the bonus features are great because I, I will tell you, I give it a 9 out of 10. Um, and I think that the only knocks uh, for it for me that keep it from becoming a 10 you've talked about, I, you've talked me into the, the ending may, you know, could have been improved a little bit. Um, some of it just suffers for budgetary reasons. And I'm certainly not going to blame John sales and Joe Dante for, mm-hmm. they just couldn't pull off some of the special effects cause they didn't have the money. Um, 
but it's a nine out of ten for me. I call it a buy, but buy the Shout Factory Blu-ray. It's fantastic. It has a huge number of extras, including uh, commentary with Joe Dante on the entire film. It's got the making of. It's got it's it's fantastic. It's a great great Blu-ray. Um, I not only bought the Blu-ray, I bought the statue that comes with it because I love the howling. I I love the werewolf so much in this. I paid like sixty bucks for a statue of the of the werewolf. So, more anyway, power to you. So basically, buy. basically, what we're saying is support Justin Beam's business, please. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if Justin did this or not. I gotta check. That'd be it's still shout. Uh, it is, it is, but it's, and yeah, we love Justin. So mm-hmm. stick around for what we'll be covering next time. But uh, folks, we do have a Patreon page and we would appreciate your support. We have different tiers on that page. Um, and depending on what tier you uh, sign up for, you can be on the show. You can pick our movies or themes and you can get exclusive content. And all of those funds are going to go to put a young man through film school to make horror movies. So it's all, it's all for a good cause. So you can also find us, uh, uh, father and son, watch horror movies on Twitter, Instagram. We have a closed Facebook group that's been growing and you can look at our blogs at father and son, watch horror.com. Where can they find you on social media, buddy? On at Twitter. I'm a King hero. That's Kane underscore hero. Uh, wait, what is my Twitter handle? I've said it so many times, but now I've forgotten it. It's like selective amnesia. I think I need to uh, go to a retreat like D. Wallace. Um, I'm at Kane underscore Hero 12. That's K-A-I-N-E underscore Hero 12. On Letterboxd, I'm at Kane Hero. That is one word. And you can find my YouTube channel floating around on the internet. All right. Well, they can find me as Pastor Matt R. on Twitter or Letterboxd. So next time, I want to, you know, this time we did something a little different. Because the howling, as you said, it's not widely available You have to rent it or buy it. I don't like to do that. I like to pick movies that if people haven't seen, they're readily available on Hulu or Netflix or Amazon Prime or something. And so I picked one that is available on Shudder, at least. And it also has an anniversary. I believe, if I'm thinking correctly, it's his 35th anniversary. Next time we are covering reanimator from 1985 i thought you'd like that one of my favorite lovecraft adaptations of all time herbert west is one of my favorite characters and uh yeah i am so excited definitely uh in my top 10 horror movies of all time at this point wow so i'm looking forward to talking about that wonderful all right well say goodbye to the good people buddy goodbye and remember to try and stay away from meat if you're Joe Dante, that is. Uh, okay. Thanks for listening. And remember, folks, the family that watches horror together slays together. See you next time. <laughs>